Buckle your seatbelts. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting um, series as we get into the uh, uh, the springtime, winter, spring series. We're going to be following Paul. And again, I would invite you to think about being a disciple of Paul because there are things that God has preserved in the scriptures for Christians of all ages. And yet sometimes we just take them for granted. Uh, this time we want to talk about being persuaded by the Holy Spirit. As, as we get into this, uh, into this season, we're thinking about the theme of participation. And as you work uh, and walk with the Holy Spirit, that God's going to do something new in your life this year. That it won't just be a head, head knowledge, it will be a heart experience that you follow Christ and you are able to tell, tell stories about what God is teaching you and what he's doing in and through you. But as we start today, I just wanted to remind us what we said last week, that if the axe is dull, Ecclesiastes says, if the axe is dull and a man doesn't sharpen its edge, he exerts more strength. But wisdom, wisdom has the advantage of giving success. And if you don't have that wisdom, you end up doing things, and Becky doesn't like this picture because she likes to have people fall in love with snakes. But this one, uh, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. And in other words, there's, there are two people involved, the snake and you, or the, uh, in, in, in a relationship, it's entering into another person's world so that you have the wisdom to handle those bites or whatever. As you move into uh, communication, you need wisdom Wisdom about God, wisdom about uh, the Holy Spirit, wisdom about the Bible, wisdom about people, wisdom about yourself. And you get this if you are following Jesus. And Jesus said, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's fully trained will become like his teacher. Now that sentence when I was in college, really caught me off guard, and I took it serious that Jesus' plan was to help me understand the heart of God and that I could grow in Christ's likeness as I stayed with this master teacher. And I wanted that. I thought, I asked myself, of all the people in the world who would be my mentor, my idol, my hero, who would I really put in that blank? And I, I seriously took an afternoon and thought, who do I really admire? Who am I following? And the only person I came up with was Christ. And I thought, I really get the privilege of listening? And we talked about that last week. <clears throat> and so as we are growing into, uh, growing into this relationship with Christ, I wanted to put before you again, as I always do, so that you not just become familiar with it, but that you internalize these five things that really make a church biblical. And if you don't have these five things internalized, then you are in the need for growing in your relationship with Christ. And these are the five things you know, the C-R-R-R-R. That's not a pirate. It's the Christ-centeredness that you really know your Christian life is not about you. It's not about your performance. It's about the one who's right in front of you, who said, follow me. Then you go to the idea that we've, 
We are people of the book. We are people that believe in the revelation that God is a God who's there. He's personal. He speaks. He shares his ideas. He shares his longing. He shares himself completely. And we have a frame of reference that's so different that makes us peculiar. Odd in some circles. But we believe the revelation. But the idea that the gospel is redeeming, that not only did God come and send his son on the cross to take that guilt of our sin away so that we're completely forgiven. And the cross, the cross, the cross is the proof that God loves us to the nth degree that he would die for you. To believe that Jesus died is history. But to believe that Jesus died for you is salvation. And for you to become so convinced that and certain and assured that right now if you died, you wouldn't face eternity alone. That you'd have one who's gone before you in death and was raised from the dead to give you the hope of the resurrection. And that idea of the gospel, the good news, good, 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 good. Did I say good? The good news is you can have new life in Christ. That life is for you to pass on. But not just to pass on, it's for you to touch people with real life. As you understand all of that, we've, we've set that up as we've gone through Paul. And now we're going to move into these two other realms that we're going to be looking at the restoration. How do you engage people to restore them, to draw them, to motivate them, to move them, to think about Christ in a way that you, you do? That you worship him and that you count him worthy of praise. That you, you think that he's priority. And so, again, that restoration, that there's something that takes place in the fallen soul that takes us back to the Garden of Eden where we enjoy the freedom that's ours in Christ. God wants you healed completely in your spirit and in your soul and in your mind and in your, in your heart so that you think like Christ to restore people. And everywhere Jesus went, he would touch people. <clears throat> Monday, I, I give that funeral. And thinking about the funeral, uh, I thought about Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't go to any funerals because every funeral he went to, he raised them back to life. Lazarus, there's no funeral in Jesus. And so Jesus, you, if you follow Jesus, you won't have to face that death because alone because there's more to that than just a funeral and say, it's all over. You're going home. There's a, it's great stuff. And so not only is heaven good and, and waiting for us, but heaven on earth is now being implemented and operationalized by those who are following Christ. And therefore, we talk about this all the time, but we say, if you watch Paul, Paul shifted his focus from the methodology of being a, a, a rabbinical seminarian teaching the ways of the rabbis and the temple and the Torah. He shifted his whole philosophy from an institutional religion of Judaism to a relational focus in the kingdom. And you'll see that peppered all the way through the New Testament. That Paul says it's about knowing Christ and how well you know him and how well 
and how much you want to make him known to other people. Well, all that to say is that we're on different stages of this growth process. But in all Christians know that the Holy Spirit is present. Christ, if you ask Christ into your life, then you're a Christian. But your maturity is different. And so these trees are different stages. You'll see that Christ is present in all Christians, but he's prominent in some Christians, but he's preeminent in a very few in the sense that there are people that have grown and and disciplined themselves and spent time with Christ in the word, in prayer, over time, that there's a qualitative difference between just saying you're a Christian or I believe in God and the one who says, I know his voice. I want to be like him. I want to follow him wherever he goes. Therefore, as you have received Christ, Paul would say, to the Colossians, so walk in him. Having been, again, firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, established faith, as you are instructed. This doesn't take place in the corner as a silo Christian. You're at home, just me and Jesus. Paul had to instruct. And therefore, the need for you to learn a doctrine, the need for you to learn Uh, the disciplines, the need for you to learn fellowship, the need for you to be connected to the body of Christ, you have to be instructed. There's that discipleship. And therefore, if somebody gives you the time and gives you their life, what happens is there's just a sense of overflowing joy, a gratitude. And that takes place when discipleship takes place. And that's why our theme, as we go into the book, is about participation. Are you participating in the learning community of God? And you're participating in your personal development. And now you're going to be participating in moving into restoring relationships through the forgiveness, the grace, the wonder, the hope. All, all that comes together as we jump into the book of Acts. It's a great springboard. So as we get in, listen to... Acts 17, you know, Paul has left Thessalonica. He's moved down closer to Athens, and on the way, he stops at this church in Berea. And the Berean church, it says that those Bereans, they were noble-minded. They were thinking people. Because when Paul would talk about Jesus as the Messiah, they say, well, wait a minute, Paul, weren't you the one that trying to kill the Messiah and those who followed the Messiah? They said, why did you do that? And Paul would share his story about how He met the resurrected Lord. And the Bereans were saying, no, wait a minute. Are you saying this Jesus is the Messiah of David, the king, all the prophecies of Isaiah? Are you saying that this Jesus and the Bereans went to the Bible, went to the Old Testament to say, okay, now what did Isaiah say about that, Paul? Where's that? And they were noble-minded because they, they questioned Paul. But they asked Paul, share it again, persuade us, Paul. Because we don't know, but the Bereans were more noble-minded. And the closer you get to Athens, what you find is a more educated, questioning group of people. And now we're moving into this great city of Athens. And as I was reading through this, I was thinking to myself, Self, (laughs) there's no way you can appreciate this until you put yourself in Paul's position. But I'm trying to use your imagination 
And listen as I read Acts 6, 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Notice the plural, deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought Paul to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is <clears throat> which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by any human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, of an image formed by the art and the thought of man, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men that by raising him from the dead, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But the others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And Paul went out of the mist. There's lots in this passage. And I'm trying to narrow it down, hopefully, to only four themes as we, as we run through this. But I want you to go back to this passage because it is instructive for what we're doing here at Chesterland Baptist here in, in America at this point in time. The four themes I want to look at is, I want to comment about the city of Athens. 
as we move into the Western mindset of the Greeks, we're moving away from Israel. We're moving away from Hebrew thought. We're moving into a different kind of culture, and it is far, far away from what we know from the Old Testament. I want to look at Paul's thinking and his worldview, because Paul is going to present something that you also need to understand and think, do you line up with what Paul is saying? That Paul's thinking about God, Paul's thinking about man, Paul's thinking about the Holy Spirit. And as Paul understands these things, he's going to be talking about a God in a way that only God has revealed, as he has revealed himself. And he's going to be talking about God's revelation in light of our relationship to him as people. The third thing is we're going to talk about this persuasive work of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work in the mind of someone who doesn't want a relationship with God? Some interesting thoughts there. And last is we're going to talk about the tactics. I've heard that word before. That Paul uses when he goes into a non-Christian, non-believing, secular setting. And so there are lessons for us here. Among the Greek. Now, a couple of things. Paul was a persuaded man. Are you a persuaded man? As, as Mark read at the beginning of our call to worship, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. Some people believe, but they're not persuaded. Some people know, but they're not convinced. Paul was a persuaded man. And it would take a man of this persuasion to do what Paul did. I would say to you, as I read Paul and I thought about this, this persuasion came early to me in my young life. As when I was 22 years old, I knew the Lord in such a way that I was persuaded that what he was doing was of eternal value. That there would be nothing more important than to give myself to two things that are eternal. One, the word of God. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And as a young man, I decided, as I was growing, that I would spend my life learning this book. Not only to master the book, but I'd want the book to master me. But the second thing that really counts for all eternity is human souls. That if you invest in people and give yourself to people, people's souls will last beyond the grave. And therefore, the word and people are things that I knew early on. And as God developed my convictions, I came to the point at 26 years old, knowing that God had been leading me through my time with soccer at Ball State. I was on the soccer team and I met some Ecuadorians, some Peruvians, and some Mexicans. I, I knew that God was bringing people into my life, some, some immigrants. And so I was studying Spanish, and I knew Spanish, and I, I just knew that God was kind of putting this puzzle together in my life. And at 26, I decided, God, I would give myself to go to short-term missions in Mexico. And I did. For three years, I lived in Monterey, Mexico. That's why the folks down at the Mexicana, down, I know those, they're from Monterey, they're great Good folks. That's a plug. In Mexico, I went to the Mexico City and the Pyramid of the Sun. I climbed up that Aztec temple where they would sacrifice 
captive slaves and they would put them on this huge stone and with a phallic knife they would cut out the human heart and hold up that beating heart to the Aztec God. And there in, in 1976, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice. 26 years old, I said, God, I am yours. Do what you want. Let me tell you, that that development of my thinking led to trusting God for my marriage, trusting God for my career, trusting God for everything. And then I came to the point in 1982 after finishing my counseling degree. Another step of faith was God was calling me to leave America and go to Japan. Why would anybody in their right mind leave America and their family behind and go to live 15 years in a foreign country? Why would I do that? Why would you do that? I was convinced and still am. I am a persuaded man like Paul that he's worth it and I've got something to say that nobody else can say I mean, for me, I have to, I can say I know Christ in a way that I want people to know him. And I know there will be people in heaven before the throne of God from Mexico and Japan and other places because God has been able to use my testimony and share the good news. And they'll be in heaven. You can have the same thing. That joy of learning how to follow Christ was what Paul understood. And as Paul would go into this city of, of Athens, you get into some stories about how cultures work. And so Athens is a great story. It's a city of myths and philosophies and thinking. But the city of Athens was named after Athena. But before it was named after the Athena, there was a conflict between Neptune or Poseidon and Athena, and the citizens of Athens voted, we want Athena to be our goddess, our patron goddess, and they built the temple for their goddess. And on that, on that uh, temple, Paul would go there and see, but this city, this city was incredible. I'd like to go there. I haven't gone there. But this city was so religious. I can't give you this sense. You don't have this sense. But Paul had this sense, and I've had this sense, that if you would go to Athens and you'd walk around, you'd see statues everywhere because nearby Athens was a, a marble quarry of the finest white marble in the world. They were unlimited in their ability to take stone and carve. There were 30,000 statues in Athens. Every corner, everywhere you went. And so Petronius would say it's easier to find a god or a goddess in Athens than it is to find a man. Can you imagine being in a place like that? I don't think so unless you've really been around and you've, you've, you've been introduced by a friend or international student, but there are things about these religions around the world. I was in Bangkok, and this is the temple I went to. You notice that demon out front, the demons are there to scare other demons. Well, we don't think that way, but they do. 
And if you've been into Malaysia, you go to these temples and there's, there's just a sense of what is going on here. These are man-made, hand-painted, gold-stenciled uh, idols that you'll find. And you go and you find people praying to these multiple gods and goddesses. The Buddha of a thousand eyes. If you've, if you've never walked through one of these temples, and of course you haven't, but the oppressive spirit is like, this is dark. In Bangkok, when they have the, the worship of the moon, I don't know if you have these <clears throat> little incense sticks that you put on a little incense burner and they can, pff, fills up your house. Can you imagine an incense stick this thick Four feet high, and every 20 feet on the city street for five miles, incense is just going everywhere. And so when you walk into these, these countries, you think, my word, what are they, where am I? I'm back in the primitive, the, the pagan, and, and you would think, well, that's Athens, that's, mm, nope, nope. I opened my door to my apartment in Japan, and this is what I would see. The cannon, the goddess. She's 70, 75, 77 feet, and there are lights on her all at night because she's the center of the valley, and everybody looks at the, the, the cannon goddess to be the protector. She's in the news recently because four men scaled her and put on a 77-pound cloth over her mouth to pray for the goddess to protect them from the COVID virus. Can you imagine that? But you can climb up inside of her and go to the stairways and look out her eyes. This is not a god. This is not a goddess. And therefore, you come to Athens and you see Paul agitated. I've been agitated. But not only by the statues, that there are other idols that you don't see that have just as much influence. And so Paul would go into this great city. Now there are people in Athens who have said, now there's a primitive spirit here, and, and yet there's a rational, philosophical, intellectual approach that we really don't, I mean, we tolerate this religious stuff, and we, but the Epicureans and the Stoics and the philosophers had a different approach. Athens was called the home of the debaters. This is the home of the Greek wisdom. And knowing that, that the, the paintings and the statues all were about how the gods were to explain how to live or how the gods were going to bless you or curse you. If it wasn't Poseidon in the sea, it was going to be the land of the, the earthquakes. And so in this, city, in this city, at the time when they grew Athens was the center of the world because everybody looked to Athens. Athens' glory days was 300 years before Christ. And when Paul got to Athens, it had lost its power. That's what you need to know. The power of Athens had shifted to another city. What other city in Greece do you know? Corinth. Corinth then became the most popular political 
powerhouse in Greece. And we'll get into Corinth, but right now we're going to a, 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 a city that has lost some of its glory. It still had everything intact, and it was the university town. If you wanted to find out something, you would go to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And if you notice that in this fresco by Raphael, you can't see it very well there, so let me enlarge it for you. Plato on the left, or Plato on the left, with his hand raised, symbolized the theory, the idealistic, the abstract, the, the ideal universe, the way life is supposed to be. Plato would try to deal with these big mega themes, but it was Aristotle, his disciple of, of some well, 17, or longer than 17 years, I think. But the fingers pointing down, and the idea that particulars, the, 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 the identifying the details. Socrates was more practical, or Aristotle was more practical, because he wanted to know how things work. And these two represent science to understand and explain how, how nature works. If you understand what philosophy is, what Plato was about, it was about understanding wisdom. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It was like, well, how do people, what, what makes people tick? What makes people good? They were asking questions. Science was asking questions as religion was asking questions. And both Plato and Aristotle were open to these spiritual discussions, as was Socrates. But this idea of philosophy being wisdom, we love to find out. We love to explain that spirit is still here. And as you move into it, some of the questions that religion would ask would be the same questions science would ask. But there'd be a different focus. But make no mistake, the world would persuade a lot of people according to a humanistic value system. And therefore, likewise, when you get into a discussion with somebody of a different culture, you're going to have a clash of worldviews. You're going to have a conflict. You're going to have a conflict of uh, civilizations. You're going to have a difference in opinion about what you think truth is and what orthodoxy is. Into this context steps this man, Paul. And Paul would say this to the Corinthians. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man? except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of Athens, not the spirit of Socrates, not the spirit of Plato, not the spirit of Aristotle. We have received the spirit who is from God that we might know the things given to us by God. This orientation, this spirit that was going to disciple Paul is the same spirit that's going to disciple you and me. And therefore, as the disciples would understand, and you've got to come to this point, as the disciples were challenged, well, he's saying some hard things to understand, and they were ready to turn away from Christ, and Jesus said to the disciples, do you want to go away too? And Peter, bless his pee-picking heart, he said, God, there's nobody else. There is nobody else. 
Now, underline this, and we'll come back to it. There is nobody else to whom we should turn, for you have words of life, eternal life, and we have come to believe, first part, and we have come to know, second part, that you are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Holy One, the one set apart, the one farthermost back. There is no one higher. We have believed that you are the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And Peter said, we believe that God. And we believe you are that God, Jesus. And Peter said, well... He's the one that sanctified this Jesus, not as your Savior. Didn't say Savior here. Sanctify him as Lord, Lord God. And you'll see this in a minute as he gets into, Paul gets into Athens. Sanctify him as Lord in your heart, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks, why do you follow Jesus? What prompts you? What motivates you? Why are you in church today? If you don't have an answer for that, you won't have an answer. But they did. And so Paul said to the Thessalonians, when they went to the Greeks up north, they said, you received this word, not, not from men, mere men, it was revelation. And you took it as God speaking to you, as he says, you heard it from us, you accepted it, and for what it really is, the Word of God, which is also at work in you. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God in the people of God to make them children of God. And when that happens, Paul says, therefore, knowing, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the respect, knowing the worth, knowing the value, we persuade men. Wow. Interesting. That we hope that we are well known Notice what he says. We are well known to God. Underline that verse. We are well known to God, Paul said. Paul was saying, God knows me very well. And I don't know God that well, but I am persuaded that what I know of him, he knows me well. He knows me, period. That was enough for Paul. And that we, and also that we are well known to you. This is a relational knowledge. How well do people know you? It's relationship for Paul, pure and simple. And therefore, as he's going into grace with these statues abounding, this isn't artwork, folks. This isn't the statue of David. These are gods that they would worship. And Paul was agitated. And he was agitated because there was a clash of kingdoms. Therefore, concerning, and Paul, get this, get this. Paul said, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. The things sacrificed to idols. We know, and underline this, we know that there is no such thing thing as an idol in the world. There is no God in your idol. Paul says you've been duped. You've been persuaded by another kind of spirit that leads you away from Christ to worship a stone, to worship a statue. 
There is no idol. It's just a man-made artifact. And Paul was convinced there is no God but one. Now, church, you've got to get this. Because when you hear people say, well, all religions are the same. You know, the Muslim religion and the Buddhist religion, and it's all the same. No! There's only one true living God, and all other religions are not that God. And therefore, Paul would go, Paul would go into the temple, and he would begin to explain as a persuaded man that this Jesus is the Messiah. And no one could say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. You can say this sentence if your second language learning Jesus is Lord. Christos. You can say that. It's el, el Señor. But does it mean that? Paul's saying the reality of this one God in a relationship with you, you can't claim integrity. You can't claim credibility unless the Holy Spirit is transforming your life in such a way that you are credible in the conscience. You know that you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you are alive. You've been born again. You've been awakened. You, you belong to him. You can't say Jesus is Lord in a relational way except through the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're not saved, what I'm saying to you is nonsense in our world. But Paul was saying, nope. He understood what the cross meant. He understood what salvation meant. He understood what sanctification meant. He understood what Pentecost meant. He understood that God was not only saving me for heaven, but making me alive as a man on earth right now as heaven would come down. And therefore, Paul understood that this Jesus had to be lifted up because, he, as Jesus would say, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Paul would understand that Jesus is the true light that comes into the world, enlightening every man. And as you hear Paul Paul would say to the Ephesians that the eyes of your heart, now get this, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the Holy Spirit so that you will know what the hope of his calling. Well, let me move into the last part. As you understand that Paul was a persuaded man, Paul was persuaded there's only one God, only one Savior, one Lord, he understood that men, he understood people didn't have Christ and needed to be saved. Paul understood that the working of the Holy Spirit would do the work of persuading. I don't have to do that. I don't give people life. I don't come up with this argument of you have to believe me because I believe the Bible. This is his work. And therefore, Christian rest and relax because the Holy Spirit is way ahead of you. And therefore, for us, we understand what Paul teaches us to understand, that he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and by the washing of regeneration, and notice by the renewing, the restoration by the Holy Spirit. As Paul got into Greece, he ran across people who were skeptics, 
His tactics were to listen to them, identify the spirituality, identify the philosophies, but he presented the living God who's calling you to repentance. To all nations, this one God among all nations is why Paul went to Athens. Because he knew Athens was just a stepping stone to the other center of power, Rome. Paul was not fleeing persecution. He was following the Holy Spirit. Whether the common people, intellectual people, people in the marketplace, people in, 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 in high positions of power, it doesn't make a difference. It's the same for us. Wherever you go, the Holy Spirit is going to be using us as you learn to grow in how you understand the Lord well. And therefore, join us in understanding that we are all in the process of learning. You don't have it together. I don't have it together. But the grace of God knows that. And so he'll give us what we want to be the people that we want to be, to be the people that reflect Christ. As we get into the tactics, there are some things that I want you to hear that you can love people into the kingdom by presenting them the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do his work. You participate and connect. It's called discipleship. It's called friendship. It's called fellowship. Whatever you call it, just, it's life on life. Sharing life, sharing what you're learning. You want to be part of that? I invite you to be part of that this year. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that that message from heaven, that message that comes through your Son, comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we don't know what to do with it. Therefore, we need your wisdom, and we call upon you to disciple us as you would those 12 men and other women there in the New Testament. Father, we are here to learn from you. So give us your heart, give us your mind, give us your spirit as we want to be people who walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.